Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, this is a podcast I am going to enjoy because I have the privilege of talking with one of my finest, dearest friends in the world, Dr. John Woodbridge. John D. Woodbridge is Research Professor of Church History and the History of Christian Thought at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, John. Timothy, it's a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, I was thinking about how long we have known each other, and we've been involved together in so many projects over the years, I can't even remember them all. Uh, We worked together for a number of years at Christianity Today as senior editors. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have been involved in the Amsterdam Declaration of the Great Amsterdam Conference that Billy Graham convened in the year 2000. That is correct. We were there together. We also have been involved for many years and still are in the project brought together by Chuck Colson and Richard John Newhouse, known as Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Yes. We've written a book together. Yes, we have. <laughs> we've done a lot of things together. So now we're going to Italian restaurants together. Oh, that, well, that's true, too. Yes, and, and we won't talk about all of them, but some of them have roots uh, in, let's say, southern Sicily. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Anyway, uh, what are we going to talk about today? I have an idea. Uh, there are so many younger Christians, even younger pastors, who just came along at a time in their life uh, and didn't have a chance to know some of the great shapers of the evangelical faith in the last 50, 60, 100 years. Now, we're not quite 100 years old, you and I, but we're, we're headed there. We're, we're moving that direction. You're absolutely right. So I wanted us to talk about some of the great figures in evangelical life that you and I have known in different contexts yes. and who've meant so much to us. Yes. Uh, and figures like Billy Graham that I mentioned a while ago, uh, Dr. Carl F.H. Henry would be another one, Ken Concer would be another one, Chuck Colson would be another one. I'm sure the others that will come up in our conversation. But as a way of introducing this uh, cast of characters who had such a formative influence on us and on the evangelical church in certainly North America and around the world. Yes. Uh, I want us to do that. So Thank you. Maybe we could just get going by saying a little bit about Billy Graham. How did you first get to know Billy Graham? Uh, I got to know uh, Billy Graham more by uh, contact with him through my dad, because my father knew him very well. They played golf together, mm-hmm. and the, the, they knew each other when Billy Graham would come up to a place called Word of Life in uh, northern uh, New York. But particularly, uh, I knew uh, Billy Graham as a teenager and seeing him on television. And then I went to one of his rallies in New York City in uh, 1957. Oh, you were at the 57 Crusade in New York. I was at the 57 Crusade. I heard him in 1950 in the Rose Bowl when he came for mid-century. So I, I saw him quite a bit. But, you know, he was Billy Graham and I wasn't. And so... But what, uh, what occurred here is that I had I learned later more about him that is that he would be one of the major figures who spurred on the evangelical movement after World War II. Uh, he came out of Youth for Christ 
And uh, in 1949, as you know, he had a major crusade in Los Angeles, and large numbers of people came to know the Lord. He became an American figure as an evangelist. The presidents knew him. And then in 1954, he was in London, and he became, if you will, a world evangelist. And so in, in studying Billy Graham, which I, I have quite a bit, I came to appreciate him as one of these persons who was very gospel-focused, very humble, and as you know, because you know him you know, probably much better than I, what was really attractive about him was when he would go and preach. Mm. He, had, he would say, uh, the Bible says. Mm. He had such confidence in the power of the Word of God that it was a sword. I want to interrupt you. Sure, please do. And just ask you, on that very point you're talking about, Billy Graham's confidence in the Bible. Yes. And uh, you know there was another evangelist who at yes. the time was even more prominent in some circles yes. than Billy Graham, named Charles Templeton from yes. Canada. Uh, who went in a different direction yes, on Scripture. Would you say a little bit about him and that contrast? And I'm thinking particularly about that incident in Billy Graham's life in California when he made that overwhelming commitment to the truth of the Scriptures. Timothy, thank you so much for highlighting that. Uh, Chuck Templeton and Billy Graham both worked for Youth for Christ. And Chuck went to, happened to go to an Eastern school and his, had his confidence rocked in Scripture. And he... Uh, said to Billy, you're not going to amount to much if, in point of fact, you hold this high view of Scripture. And that really troubled Billy. And so, as it turns out, just before the 1949 crusade, Billy went up to a camp outside of Los Angeles up in the mountains called Forest Home. And there he had real trouble because he was going to preach, but he wasn't sure he had confidence in the Word of God. And it's a very important story. He goes out and puts the Bible on his stump, and he says, Lord, I, I don't know all about these things, but I accept the Word of God on faith. And he, and he says, you know, this wonderful article he writes in October of 1956 in, in Christianity Today called uh, Biblical Authority and Evangelism. He says, and that was the secret of my ministry. He said because he could say the Bible says, and the tremendous relief of saying that is, is several fold. One is that you have confidence it's the Holy Spirit that does the work in the person uh, that you're speaking to uh, through Scripture. But that also takes a, a burden off of you because this is not your work in one sense. Mm -hmm. So that Billy could speak very, in some regards, plainly, but he had great confidence in the Bible, you know, as a sword, and he talks about this. So yes, you're absolutely right. That was a turning point for him and gave him tremendous power in ministry. Now we're going to move on to some other people in a minute, but before we leave Billy Graham, there, there are two things about him that have deeply impressed me in addition to his faithfulness and his single-mindedness as an evangelist. God called him to be an evangelist, not a politician, not a movie star. He had opportunities, but as an evangelist. That's right. And he's been faithful to that to this very day. He's still living, by the way, as we make this recording. That's correct. Almost 100 years old. I think he's 98. He's 98. And so God has blessed him with a long and productive life. Two things. In 1956, he was involved as the, the leading founder, really, of Christianity Today, along yes. with his father-in-law, L. Nelson Bell. Yes. And that showed great, I think, foresight. He also was a key figure in the founding of Fuller Theological Seminary. That's absolutely correct. At a time when there were very few, if any, evangelical seminaries of that caliber, of that yes. strong. So he, he's had a, he's had a, not just a, a commitment to Scripture, but a desire to let the good news of Christ saturate the culture, the academy, the world. Exactly. Say something about that. 
Well, sometimes Billy Graham uh, was was compared to another person named Carl Henry that we'll be speaking about. Mm -hmm. And Carl Henry was sometimes portrayed as the thinking man's Billy Graham uh, and so forth. The implication was that Billy Graham wasn't a great thinker. Billy Graham was a wonderful thinker. Mm. He was very committed to scholarship. And you, you mentioned the things that were so important for him. He wrote a, a letter to a gentleman who was going to fund Christianity Day. He said, I've been up in Scotland, and we've seen terrific re- re- results. People have come to know the Lord. But we leave, and the pastors here, they need help. And he said, we need to found a magazine. That was one of the major reasons he founded Christianity Today, to follow up on his crusades. I just learned this, frankly, within the last week or two, so I'm hmm. telling you this right now. I didn't know this. And, and, and so you're absolutely right on that point. But the, moreover, he was, he was the president of the school. He was one of the youngest presidents in the United States when he was the president of, of, of Northwestern. So he had an interest in academics, but he also saw... The, the need to work on worldview, maybe not he himself, but he would be very interested in backing Carly F. H. Henry, and he has a tremendous role in the founding of uh, being associated with Fuller Theological Seminary. So you're exactly right. Here is a person who has a heart for the Lord, but the thing that so strikes me in thinking about him, he had confidence that it was the Lord who did the ministry. And he had a vision, I just was working on this, he had a vision, he hoped, that his evangelistic campaigns would start a world awakening. Mm. And he is not intimidated by anything. He thinks Paris can go, he thinks Chicago can go, (laughs) he's just ready to see the Holy Spirit work. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yes. Well, you've mentioned Carl Henry once or twice, I have too, and we we ought to talk about him because he meant so much to both of us. He he actually spoke at my installation as the Dean of Beeson Divinity School. He loved you dearly. He did, and and I, him, back in 1988, such a great encourager to me and to so many others. Yes. I mean, his influence was wide-reaching in so many areas of life. Uh, the founding editor of Christianity Today, but also a great writer and and scholar and theologian. You know, his God, Revelation, and Authority, those six volumes, I don't think it's been surpassed in terms of its depth and breadth uh, as a theological epistemology by anybody in the the last hundred years. That's right. So how did you get to know Carl? I met Carly Fitch Henry when I was nine years old. Oh. So a long time ago. That that doesn't mean that I understood what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> because as you know, Dr. Henry used very big words. He was my father's colleague at Fuller Theological Seminary. So I met him when I was nine. I want to tell a joke right here. It's actually not my joke. It's Millard Erickson's joke. Millard Erickson's a great evangelical theologian himself, one of our best. And he said that... He was going to read God, Revelation, and Authority once it was translated into English. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's something to be safe for, safe for that, but I'm not going to say it. But that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wonderful statement, but you're absolutely right. The thing that I so appreciate about him is I, I did get to know him more as an adult. I, I went to school with his son at Wheaton College. And that was Paul Henry. He became a congressman. He became a congressman. But what Henry, what Henry was an amazing man in that he combined in himself what I would think is the ideal person in one sense. He was a theologian evangelist. You described him so well. Tremendous theologian. Tremendous. Mm -hmm. But he was very committed to evangelism. Mm -hmm. In the early 40s, when he was at Wheaton College, he was was involved in a track ministry. When he was uh, a, a young man, he was very much committed also to the whole idea that there would be, uh, there was going to be a revival that might be uh, a forthcoming. He was he was impacted by a Wheaton College revival, so that when Henry went into ministry, 
he surely was a great person in terms of worldview. But I remember an anecdote from uh, an individual I knew who was at Fuller in the early 1950s, and he said, you know, I would go into a lecture and hear a remarkable uh, presentation on philosophy and religion. Then I'd go out and see Dr. Henry, and he was out by the mailboxes, and he'd be witnessing to the mailman who came in. Henry would go down to Skid Row. Henry was just an absolutely committed evangelist. Yes, he was. And, you know, um, he he came to Trinity many times. I think you have a library name for him, don't you? We do. We, we and do. you have his papers. We have all of his papers. So I tell you, if you, uh, this is said in an admiring way. Uh, Henry was a pack rat. We have about everything he has. So if you're interested in Carly Fitch Henry, come on down. All this stuff is there. <laughs> You know, I want to share a, a memory I have of Carl Henry, an unforgettable experience of, of Carl Henry. Uh, he was preaching at the Southern Baptist Convention, thousands and thousands of pastors who were there and others. And his text was from uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And in particular, he was focusing on uh, this verse, verse 5. Also, they are afraid of height and terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire falls. He's talking about vanity. Everything is vanity. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. He's talking about this thing about the grasshopper is a burden and desire falls. And Carl Henry actually made believe that he was a grasshopper and began to hop as best he could with his difficult physical condition at the time, his tall, lumbering frame, across the platform of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's as close as I've ever seen him come to having a charismatic experience. Well, I, I have to say that you were a very privileged person to see that. <laughs> I have a hard time imagining that. But I, I trust you so thoroughly. I, I imagine this is true. <laughs> this is amazing. That's right. But what a, what a dear man. I have to say, too, I, I talked with him once about the loss of his son. Mm. Because uh, Paul was... He died very prematurely. Prematurely. He was a congressman from you know, Western uh, Michigan. He loved his son Paul very much. But then he said to me, he said, I said, has, has that caused you to doubt? Has that, has that, how's that affected you? He said, mm -hmm. I've never, but since I was converted, I've never doubted Christ Jesus. I trust him and I trust him even with the loss of my son. I was so impressed by the fact that this humble Christian man had such faith in such trying circumstances. Yeah. You know, the last time I saw Carl Henry, uh, your former president at Trinity, my friend, Dr. Greg Waybright, invited yes. me to go with him. They were living in a nursing home in Wisconsin, yeah. he and his wife, Helga. Right. And we drove up uh, just to see them, to pray with them, to wish them well. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was not able to walk at that point. He was mm -hmm. totally bedfast. Mm -hmm. But there, there was a sparkle in his eyes. You, yes. you could tell he never lost that. No. And before we left, we had prayer with him. Uh, and then he gave each one of us... Uh, Greg and myself, a commission. He wanted us to do something that would help with the cause of evangelism and witnessing for Jesus Christ. Here's a person at the end of his long... He was in his 90s, 92 or 3, I think, uh, when, when he passed away. And right before that, he was giving us instruction on how to be faithful to the Great Commission. Could I add something about all that? And that has to do with who he was as a young man. Hmm. Charlie Fish Henry was a worldling. And he was witnessed to by a professor from a student who graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. And the individual finally got Henry to sit down and he presented the gospel to him. And Henry said, after 
I mean, he was atheistic. He said, but after I prayed the Lord's Prayer, I would have gone to China as a missionary. And I think one of the things that's so important to remember about him, that he really knew Christ, mm. and he knew the power of the gospel. And sometimes in our own circles, we forget about how powerful the gospel is. It's so intriguing to me personally that some of these people, like some we're talking about, Concer, who we'll speak about maybe mm -hmm. a little bit, he was an atheistic person. Uh, uh, Henry, atheistic person. But these individuals reflect the power of the gospel to change them, and then they become individuals who go out with great confidence because they've met the Lord. And Carly Fitzhenry knew the Lord. He did. You mentioned Ken Concer, and we ought to say something about him. Yes. You were very close to Ken. I knew him and had great respect for him. I got to know him at Christianity Today, yes. and then we had him come to Beeson and give our Reformation lectures. Yes. Wonderful man. But say a little bit about Carl, about, about Ken Concer, uh, his role in your life, but particularly uh, at, at Trinity. Kenneth Concer, uh, I met him for the first time when I was a student at Wheaton College. I took a, a course from him. And so I was so impressed with him as a, as a professor. It turns out that for a, a while I left the Christian faith. And when I was coming back, I tried to think of somebody, who do I know who knows God? And mm -hmm. I thought of the person as Kenneth Conser. So that was one of the reasons I went to study with him uh, at, at Trinity. But just to speak about what his role was, uh, Kenneth Conser had been at Wheaton College, uh, and uh, he sensed uh, the need for another evangelical school, given some of the problems that were happening in evangelicalism. So he left a very prestigious uh, position at Wheaton College to found a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School towards 1963, and it only had less than 100 students. But under his guidance, uh, Trinity became the fastest growing seminary in the country in the 60s. Uh, but what was so attractive about him? He was a Harvard person, very, very bright, but very, very humble. Mm. And the thing is, I, I noticed about him when I got to know him even more, because he really was like a second father. Uh, when, he, when you talked with him, he's actually listening. He wasn't looking <laughs> over your shoulder. Mm. And, I, and I would tell students, look, he's a great exegete, he's a wonderful leader, he's a CT, all that stuff. What you want to do is, you want to get him in an office, bribe him with coffee, he loves coffee, <laughs> And go in there and talk with him because you're dealing with a man of God. Mm. And, and part of, I'm just trying to summarize his work, he, he, he was a builder. He didn't write so much. But I have to say his influence in working at CT and other places was absolutely immense. I hope, you know, as your listeners and as we're talking about this, they'll get a sense that we're talking about some major, major figures who helped create the evangelical movement after World War II. And, you know, dear brother, you and I have been really blessed that we, got, we knew those folks. One memory I have of, of Ken Concer is at Christianity Today, sitting around the, the table with the other senior editors and the staff as we were working on issues. And, of course, uh, combustible issues are going to come up, controversial matters. That a magazine's just going to attract them, you know, like flies to honey. And so something was coming up... Uh, I, Whatever it was, it was very combustible, very divisive, and we would go round and round, and somebody says this, and somebody says that, and here's what we ought to do. And Ken Concer would just sit there and take it all in. He wouldn't speak precipitously, but when he did finally speak, after all of us had had our say, it's like that guy E.F. Hutton. Everybody <laughs> listens. <laughs> and what he had to say 
was wise. That's the word I would call it, wisdom. Oh, that's right. And he often, so many times, helped us through a deep, difficult issue toward a resolution that we felt was honoring uh, to the Lord. Can I reinforce that with a personal experience? When I got to Trinity, I was probably half a pagan. And when I arrived there, I took classes from him. I was taking a class in theology from him. He was talking about the, the attributes of God. And that wasn't interesting to me at all. I was trying to figure out whether Jesus was a son of God. So I raised my hand and said, uh, Dr. Concert, why are we speaking about all these Aristotelian categories, descriptors of guys, and so forth? Uh, what's, more, what's more important is uh, whether Jesus was a son of God. So I was really pulling his chain, and he, he knew it, but he just said very wise. He said, Mr. Woodbridge, he said, you know, that's a really good question, whether Jesus is a son of God or not. And we'll deal with it sometime. But right now we're talking about God's attributes. <laughs> and he kept on going. I, I couldn't, just it didn't phase him. I couldn't get his go at all. It just didn't phase him a little. It's also the mark of a great teacher. Oh, <laughs> well, he, he put would, me in my place big time. <laughs> okay, let's talk about one more character. We're kind of running out of time on this podcast. But we, we've got to say something about Chuck Colson. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was such an important figure for both of us. Yeah. Uh, kind of drew us into his work. I was privileged to serve with him on the board of Prison Fellowship for a number of years, and we worked together with him and evangelicals and Catholics together. Right. Uh, tell us, uh, for the people who, who don't even know who Chuck Colson was, and I'm sure some listeners have maybe hardly ever heard his name, if at all, give us a little thumbnail sketch of who Chuck Colson was and why he's important for the evangelical faith today. Chuck Colson uh, was a New Englander, very, very talented, becomes a lawyer, uh, ultimately, as you know, he becomes the lawyer for Richard Nixon. And uh, obviously that gave him great fame, very, very powerful. Uh, and as it turns out, he becomes a figure in, in Watergate. And you and I have talked about that before. But in God's grace, he came to know the Lord, and he was soundly converted. He was reading C.S. Lewis. And the passage he read is really a corker. It's talking about the issue of pride. Mm -hmm. And Chuck was a very prideful person. But he was solidly converted. And as a result, he writes this wonderful book called Born Again that came out. And it helped thousands and thousands of people. And I hope some of your listeners will read Born Again. He, had, he went to prison for a time. But when he got to prison... Uh, you know, he he worked. He was now a Christian, and as he was leaving, one of the inmates said, "You know, you forget about us." But he said, "I won't forget about you." And he established Prison Fellowship, which is an extraordinarily wonderful ministry. Mm -hmm. And you you got to know him very well. I got to know him a little bit less well. But what was so intriguing about him was he he had a, a heart for going back into the prisons and taking care of the down-and-outers. And also, but, but in some regards, they were up-and-outers because many of them came to know the Lord, and moreover, he, he cared about, about their children. But he also had a wide vision that you and I appreciated. He was concerned about uh, Christian unity and matters of that sort, but he always wanted to uphold the evangelical faith, so he didn't compromise. But he saw the value of Catholics and evangelicals, at least having common cause of major ethical issues. So you and I got to know each other particularly well when, you know, I don't know if we should, well, we were asked to help him out and, and at breakfast time. And yeah. he took we ought to tell board. that story a little bit. because you tell it? Well, uh, you and I were not original signatories to the first ECT statement. That's we had correct. some reservations about it. That's right. This was becoming an issue, a problem, a sure concern yeah. uh, for evangelical unity. And so, so Chuck and Richard Newhouse both asked the two of us, 
uh, I think Chuck had recommended us to him because I don't think either of us knew Richard very well before that time. And so he called us both and said, we'd like for you to become a part of our ECT discussions. And Mm -hmm. I remember the breakfast you're talking about. I think it was one of our first meetings in New York City. And and Chuck took us out for breakfast uh, and we we put all our cards on the table. We said, listen, listen, uh, Chuck, we might have been calling him Mr. Colson then. I don't know. Probably so. But we're these kind of old, ragged, old-fashioned people who believe things, and we're going to be a problem and irritant in your side. Right. You need to get a nice uh, evangelical crew in here that's going to be amenable to everything that's said. You don't need us, and we will happily back away from this. He said, oh, no, I invited you here precisely because you have those kinds of convictions, yeah. and that's the only way forward, not by compromising what we believe. We can't do that. Not at all. But by digging down deep into our core convictions and finding there a common fount of life in Jesus Christ. That's been the methodology of ECT, and Chuck was all for that yeah. and supported us in our involvement every bit of the way. Yeah, and, and then is this something that... Uh you, my dear brother, you spoke at his uh, memorial service in Washington, D.C., but, but I was in the audience, but I looked down the row, and I saw a number of people who were from Fox News, and I knew that behind the scenes, Chuck Colson had led those people to the Lord. Mm. The influence of Chuck Colson behind the scenes in New York City, only God fully knows. He was a major figure in terms of evangelical witness and I, you know, one thing I remember about him so much, and you probably do too, he would see you and he'd come up and give you a big hug. Yeah. But also knew that when he was in the prisons, he did the same thing to people who had HIV. He was a man of God, and I just greatly miss him. I'll never forget going into prison with him. And there was, there was a kind of almost magical connection that he had with the prison, because he had been one. Yes, he had right. been behind bars. And you mm-hmm. know what it was like when they clicked mm-hmm. the lock mm-hmm. and they walk away and you're left there mm-hmm. behind the bars. He knew what that was like. And they immediately connected with him because he was real and because he loved them. That's exactly right. And they knew it. Yeah. And he also, he told me once, uh, you know, he was, he was talking about evangelical leadership. And he said, as I go around evangelicalism, he said, I can see people who have eye between their eyes. He said, you know, basically, if you're on the other side of the law, you have pretty good insights about people. So he could, he could figure out people pretty rapidly because he himself struggled with pride. He was very worried about anybody who was prideful. And so I must confess, I mean, I, you did more than I, but I walked the streets with him on occasion when he couldn't get to sleep at night in New York. Mm-hmm. And what I really appreciated about it, I never heard him boast about himself. No. He was, even though with all his accomplishments, he was not ego-based. And boy, what a great lesson, because he had enough accomplishments, you know, just to be singing about his own praises forever. You know, we've got to bring this to a close, although I, I think we could go on for another two or three hours. You Maybe so? we should sometime <laughs> on the Beeson podcast about so many other figures. I don't want us to leave talking about these great heroes of the faith. Heroes to you and me, because we knew them all. They shaped our lives in significant ways. But they would not want us to give the impression, and I hope none of our listeners has gotten it, that these great figures were without faults or sins. They were sinners saved by grace. That's right. right. And they all had that kind of humility at the core of their spiritual life. They did that says that they knew Jesus Christ, they'd given their hearts and lives to Him, 
and they were determined to walk with him in utter humility all the rest of their life. That's right. Uh, so uh, none of none of our heroes are without faults. We no. all have warts. That's right. We think of the great figures of the past, Luther, Calvin, whoever it is, Augustine. Uh, but we thank God that we have a, a God who is gracious beyond our worst failings. Yeah, and when you think about Billy Graham, just to remember that he, one of the questions he said when he gets to heaven, he said, the first question I'm going to ask is, why me, Lord? How could you take a person who, a farm boy, you know, from uh, North, uh, North Carolina, that even with all that he did, that Graham was very humble. He knew about his own issues. He came to our home once, and my father said, and when he prayed with Billy, his face on the ground, he understood who he was and that his ministry was all the ministry of the Lord. He, he knew what his problems were. And he's going to count on the Lord for mercy and grace, and he went forward. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Professor John Woodbridge, a good friend, a great uh, discussion partner, and co-laborer in the Lord's Vineyard. Thank you, John, for this wonderful conversation. Well, it's my prayers and honor, and thank you so much, Timothy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.